Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. It seems to me that after receiving a number of emails and having some conversations with people over this past week, that the themes of uh, loneliness and true community seem to be resonating with a lot of people. And I know that the, the first things many of you will feel and think about as we launch into this series are thoughts of your own experience and how isolated you may be feeling. And it's important that you don't just gloss over that, that you, you consider honestly why you feel the way you feel and what God's Word is saying to you about that. Um, But I also want you to know that if true community is ever going to be built at our church, it will not happen only because of what other people will do, but what you and I personally will bring to that community as well. And so it's going to be a mixed bag, a mixed experience listening to the sermon series, because on the one hand, you're going to be mindful of how many ways you have felt isolated and alone, but you're also going to be reminded that each of us together contributes to isolation or to community. We make little decisions that cause this family to feel closer or further apart. And that's the way every family works. Isn't that, isn't that true? I mean, we think that maybe a family is falling apart only because a dad decides to work too much, but really every family member will make a contribution to what the family feels like. And it's important that we keep that in mind as we travel through this series together. Okay? Can everyone just do me a favor, encourage me with just a smile so I know we're together here? You guys are staring at me like I'm I'm at a firing squad. I feel really awkward today. Well, all right. Uh, Today we're going to go to message number two of this series. And the title of the message, you know what, I've left my clicker over there. John, can you, here, let me just grab it. And the title of the message is Changing Shoes, okay? And I'll explain to you what that title means, but I'll just give you the quick punchline. True community is only possible when people start learning how to consider and regard others before they regard themselves. You know, this past week I had occasion to take a good friend to the emergency room. He was having some trouble And so we were there, you know, when you're in an emergency room, you normally don't pay attention to anything else. You're so fixed on the trouble before you. And so we were checking him in. He was getting his vitals taken. But strangely, I was very distracted by another drama unfolding in the other side of the waiting room at the ER. Doesn't mean I wasn't paying attention to my friend. I was. But there was this thing going on that just my ears kept drifting over to. There was a woman who was being taken away in obvious distress. She was in pain, and she was being taken back into the examining rooms. And her young toddler son, maybe he looked like maybe two and a half, three years old, barely knew how to talk. His name was Matthew. And he could not go back with his mom, and so he was under the care of another young woman. And she looked like maybe she was uh, his mom's younger sister, an auntie or something like that, a family member who was entrusted to watch over him while his mom went back to the ER. Well, Matthew wasn't happy about the situation. 
He saw his mom in pain and distress. Strangers had taken her away from him in this weird place, and he was left alone. So he was screaming and making a huge scene, and it was obvious that this young lady who was caring for him was flustered and upset. And she kept shouting really loud things like, Why are you doing this? Why are you acting this way? Why don't you want to stay here with me? And I think I was more distracted by her words and her attitude than I was by this little boy screaming. Now, maybe it's because I'm a dad and I'm so used to screaming, it leaves me numb when I hear children screaming. Um, I know those who aren't parents yet, that's a very grating sound, isn't it? But the truth is, it was her and her perspective on it that, what, that had the power to override my concern for my friend. It was, just kept distracting me. My mind kept going over there. I'm like, it's weird what she's saying to him. That in the midst of all this chaos, her only perspective is, why are you doing this to me? And that made me start thinking about this. How many relational breakdowns we experience, partly because, or mainly because, we don't know how to get out of our own perspective and realize there is another person involved in this unfolding story. For most of us, the starting and the ending point of every story or every situation is us. We know what everyone else has done to us and how it has made us feel, but that's about the boundary markers of our experience, our reality, isn't it? And that's why we get into so much relational breakdown is because the minute you have done something that makes me very upset and I don't understand why, I shut down and I begin to fight. The passage this morning comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. There is no way that in this message I'm going to do justice to this rich text. My aim today is not to give you a thorough exposition of these four verses, but to seize on a few key verses, a a few key phrases that I think really send us a clear message about how to build true community, where that comes from. Here's the text. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. That one's going to need a little unpacking. I'll explain that because that's a really messed up sentence there. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, this series, True Community, touches on something we all long for. I just officiated a wedding yesterday, and one of the things that I felt led to say was, Everyone lives for all kinds of things, money, beauty, fame, power. But in the end, what we're all after through all those things is we're all after love. You give a person all those other things and don't give them love, the opportunity to love deeply and to be loved in return deeply, and that person, for all their achievements and acquirements, will feel like they have an empty life. It's amazing to me that a person could have everything we ever dreamt of having, and yet without love, their life will not feel complete. 
And so love is what we're after. And this idea of true community resonates with us because in the end, nobody wanted to just come to a church. What's the point of just coming to a church? If you just come here to be in the audience, the truth is a podcast will be sufficient. Stay home in your underwear. Don't even shower. Eat Apple Jacks while you listen to it. If that's all this is about, really, what else do we need? We need a sense of being connected deeply to other human beings. This feeling like there is a family bigger than just me, and I'm integrally associated with these people. That's what calls our hearts out to church. And that's what we expect and long for when we walk in here week after week and when we go to our small groups. Here's the thing, though. Community is built out of relationships, isn't it? Community is a gathering of relationships. And in every relationship, listen to me, in every relationship, there are at least two primary characters. There is the self, you and me, and then there is the other all the other people. In every relationship, those two principal characters need to receive adequate attention. I think where a relational breakdown happens is we obsess over the self. I know exactly how I feel. I know exactly what I think. I know exactly what you did to me. I'm a little fuzzier on what I did to you, but I know exactly what you did to me, and I will never forget it. I can rehearse it a thousand times. So the self does not need much more nurturing. We're very clear on what it feels like to be in my shoes. Where relationships break down is that that other character gets almost no attention. Have you ever seen a movie that's very flat because the movie seems to follow one main hero and every other character is just background scenery for this person's story? Now, I know somebody thought that would be a good idea when they're writing it because it's easier to write a script that way. But when you're watching the movie, it's boring because it's like watching a one-man act and everybody else is just wallpaper. It doesn't feel rich. It's not engaging because after a while, you stop caring. Because there's only one person in the whole story. I think that's the way the story of many of our lives would appear if we were honest about it. I must be the star. I've said this before, right? I must be the star because I'm in every scene. Wherever I go, there I am. This must be a show about me. But have you really paused to consider the others that occupy your life? I mean, really consider them because that's where community begins is when we start to acknowledge, reflect upon, and consider the others. There's a picture of the emergency room. Here it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But listen to these words. In humility, consider others. Now, there's the rest of that sentence, but I want to just pause there for a second on those words. Consider others. That word consider in the Greek is actually a very strong word. It's not have a casual opinion. Give a brief thought to. It it suggests really think about what life is like for the people who've got to share it with you. I mean, really deeply reflect. Consider what it feels like to be your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your brother, your sister, your spouse. 
Do you know, I don't think we do that very well, which is why we don't like those honesty moments when other people are like saying, you know, how many of you like this sentence at, at a coffee shop? Somebody goes, hey, listen, I've been, I have to get something off my chest. Can I just share with you some honest feedback about you? How many of you are like, oh, give me a latte. This is going to be so fun. You like that? Do you, do, are those words welcoming and inviting, exciting? No, you dread it. Because the truth is most of us rarely give much thought to others and what it feels like for them to be around us, what their lives are like when we're not in the room. It's as if every other character in our life is flat because they don't really have a story unless they intersected my story today. You only exist when you share the scene with me. And that's the honest truth, is very few people really go to great lengths to consider others. That's why it's such a rare gift when you meet someone and you sense right away, this person is truly considerate. Considerate isn't, oh, they gave me a Band-Aid when they saw I had a boo-boo. Considerate is, wow, you actually think about other people. When you listen, you really act like you've got no place else to be. When you look around a room, you don't just see background scenery. You really see the people in the room. It's uncanny when you meet somebody who's truly considerate because when they look at you, they don't look right through you. They see you. And it's an odd feeling, a weird sensation to finally be seen. Oh, oh my God, I'm not invisible? You can actually see me? You feel like a ghost half the time walking around, don't you? And then someone goes, oh, hold on a second, I see you. It hurts, doesn't it? You're like, whoa, somebody actually just saw me. And that's Paul's admonition. He's saying, look, in humility, pause for a minute and deeply consider the others in your story. That they are not flat characters or second-rate bit actors. They are people with a story of their own. And when you leave them, their story continues. And those stories behind their lives define why they are the way they are, why they do and say the things they do and say. And I was reading a book recently called um, The Company We Keep. It's a Christian guide for male friendships written by a man named David Bentall, who was the CEO of the largest construction company in Canada and um, went on from that lucrative occupation to become a, uh, a ministry person. And he wrote this book, um, really not the most well-written book, but I think really insightful in some of the things he says. And here's one thing he writes that really stuck with me, I think because it convicted me a little. Maybe it'll convict you as well. What do you do when you meet someone at a reception or dinner party? Do you try to be interesting or do you demonstrate an interest in them? Being aware of this distinction is the first step to understanding what it takes to build a friendship. Now, let me build on what he said. When you walk into a place where you don't know a lot of people, a cocktail party, your spouse's high school reunion, I mean, is that a nightmare outing or what? <laughs> i got to sit here while you hang out with all these people you used to know. You know, you've, it's an awkward proposition, isn't it? Nobody gets excited about that. And when you walk into a place, place like that, where is your mind at? What is running? Are you thinking, oh, gosh, I hope I am interesting to people. 
I hope a lot of people will talk to me. I hope, I, or is it, wow, this is a room full of people with stories. That I don't know any of them. I wonder what makes that person tick. I hope I get to discover some new people. I, I want to take an interest in others. Now, which one of those mindsets more closely describes the way you feel generally when you walk into a place? Are you hoping that others will see you, or are you hoping you will be able to see others? Now, isn't that haunting? Because if you really think about it, the most natural response for everybody is, well, duh, I, I hope that people will be nice to me. I hope they'll make me feel comfortable at home. I'll never forget the story. This one visitor to our church probably 10 years ago was just really saying, you know, I came here hearing that this was a welcoming church, but man, you know what? This is a really unwelcoming church. There's so many people who didn't even say hi to me. And we're, they were saying this in the corner of the fellowship also. I said, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear that. Can you point out some of the people that um, kind of snubbed you or ignored you? I'm like, well, look at those two guys. I just walked near them. They just kind of looked at me like they didn't know. I'm like, yeah, they just came here for the first time this week too. Well, how about that person? Last week, first time. What I realized is they came to our church during a period where so many new people were visiting. And here's one visitor being offended by another visitor that nobody welcomed me. And I just thought that was funny. I was sad for them. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not laughing at them. What I'm saying is, isn't it interesting that here are two people who are in the exact same boat, but they don't realize they're in the same boat. They're just mad at the other person for putting them there. And I thought, how different life would be if instead of thinking, I want to be seen, we say, I want to see. Imagine if that one person said to the other, hey, you look really unfriendly, but I'm going to just take a risk. Uh, what's your name? How long have you been coming here? It's my first week. Oh my goodness, me too. High five, we're newbies. Let's find somebody who's been here for a while and see if they can be nice to us together. Now you've got a compatriot. Imagine how different it would be if instead of beginning from a distance saying, why is everyone not seeing me? If you could say, there's a room full of people, I'm going to at least go and see a couple of them. You there, what's your name? What's your story? How long have you been here? Why aren't you being nicer to me? Tell me. You know, but just take a risk. Walk into a room with the agenda that I want to be interested in others. I don't just want to be interesting to others. I think self-centeredness often does arise out of our sinful nature. But sometimes I think it's just a habit, a bad habit. I think we, most of us, live so much in our own heads, we start believing that my thoughts, my experience, my point of view define all of reality. That there is nothing real which I haven't seen or thought or experienced. The only reality is in the snow globe of my own little life. And because we believe that, it's hard for us to conceive that there is a whole world out there that doesn't center around us. And we don't always know how to interact with that world. And that's, that's the natural form of self-centeredness that I think governs most lives. And what Paul is trying to encourage us to do is to say, if you want real community, at some point, you're going to have to break out of that bad habit of seeing yourself at the center of everything. I've heard, I, I've, I've been involved in marital disputes, okay, where, you know, it's not like a major thing, but it's just, oh, this dude, he's like this, and, and the guy's like, oh, man, but she's like this. And they both have really well-defined, rehearsed complaints about the other, 
But then I'll just ask him a simple question. What do you think it feels like to be married to you? I mean, just think about it for a little bit. What would it feel like to be married to you? What do you think you make that person feel like on a regular basis? Yeah. I guess not that great. I mean, all right, I'll admit it. Sometimes I'm, you know. But, but you, you get the feeling they haven't really dwelt on that question at all until they were asked. If you really want to build community, you've got to stop just looking in the mirror and you've got to look out the window. You have to realize your life is populated by real people and you're not always sure what it feels like to be in their shoes. And that's the whole point of this title, Changing Shoes. Community begins when we gain the capacity to change shoes with somebody, to step into their shoes. That's the idea of consider. It's a, it's a rich word. I think the goal here is something like the difference between empathy and sympathy. Now, I'm not a professional um, you know, counselor, so I, I might have these definitions wrong. Here's the, here are the definitions I'm working off of. Sympathy is an intellectual identification with understanding something. Like, oh, you just lost your, your dog. You must be worried. I understand that. It must be hard to lose the dog that you love. Sympathy feels concerned. It even mobilizes to action. Let me help you put up some posters around town. Because I understand it must be difficult. And that's where, strange enough, I find that I often dwell. Even though I'm in a caring profession, even though I'm meant to feel things with people, I find that one of the greatest obstacles for me is to move beyond sympathy to empathy, where you not only understand what it's like for them, you begin to feel the things they feel. It's a supernatural transporting into another person's shoes. So you don't only just say, what would it be like to be you? But really, what is it like to be you? To dwell on until you realize, oh my gosh, if I were in their shoes, this is what I would be feeling. I think most of us are not so bad at sympathy. If by virtue of nothing else in cultural training, sympathy is the norm, isn't it? Ooh, sorry. Man, that's horrible. But very few people have attained to empathy. And so it's really... it. it, um, it kind of startles me when I meet somebody who has the capacity for empathy, really feeling what another person feels. Now, that can be a burden. Some people don't have feelings. and They just walk around absorbing everyone else's feelings. It can be a burden, but I think it's a goal as well. That what God is encouraging us to do in building communities, not just think about other people, but really try your best to step into their shoes and think about what life is like every day for them. Not just when you intersect their lives, but imagine after the music fades and the, the camera fades to black and they're still there, what is it like to walk a day in their shoes? What does life feel like for them? <clears throat> Jesus did that for us. In fact, I think he was the ultimate example of empathy in that he literally stepped into our form. He took on flesh and blood. The infinite God of the universe stepped down from heaven and eternity and put on meat and became like us, hairless apes walking the earth just like us. How far did he go in identifying with us? Hebrews 
The author of Hebrews writes richly about this, both here and in chapter 4, verse 15. He says, therefore, it was necessary for Jesus to be in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful, oh, excuse me, what happened here? So that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. He then could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and temptation, he is able to help us when we are being tempted. I get so blessed when I see people going to extra measures to identify with the plight of another. When you see somebody going through chemo and radiation and somebody else in their circle of friends will shave their heads bald to stand with them, that moves me in a really powerful way. Because everywhere you go, you're going to have to explain your baldness. And you begin not only to understand, but to feel what that person feels with the loss of their hair. And when you say, look, I'm with you, that word takes on a deeper aspect because you haven't just cognitively thought about their situation. You have gone through what some of what they're going through. A small part, but nonetheless, you are experiencing You are putting on their shoes, and it adds a profound depth to the way that you relate to that person. I think there are limits to how far we can go, but the point is, have you gone as far as you can to change shoes with the people you say you care about? Let me move on and give you the second of two points. Uh, What happened here? I lost a couple of slides. Let me give you the the remaining verses, verses 3 and 4. It says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility. And this is the part we've got to unpack. Consider others, what? Better than yourselves. If you're paying attention, that ought to mess you up a little bit, right? I mean, are you awake? Doesn't that bug you? Is it just me? You guys are so selfless. Oh, Pastor Dave, why is that so hard for you? I don't want to hear, consider others better than yourselves. I've got to know exactly what God means when he says that, or that could lead to a very troubling way of life. It's not just because I'm pig-headed and stubborn, because I want to go all the way. I'm not sure where the boundaries are on a statement like that. What does it mean to consider others better than yourselves? There's a saying that's very common in American culture today, I don't know when it began, but it's that phrase, it's not about you. Do you guys like that phrase? We like saying it. We hate hearing it, right? We love self-righteously walking up and saying, hey, it's not about you. It feels so good to say it, stupid. It's not about you. We love saying it to our kids, honey, it's her birthday party. It's not about you. I know. But do you like hearing it? See, I don't like hearing it because there's something that's been added to that phrase in our culture that I think is not right. When people say those those words to me, sometimes what I feel like I'm hearing is, you don't matter at all. I think the statement is too strong. There's some truth to the fact that it's not all about you, but because you're there, it is at least a little about you. You're present in it, you matter, you're relevant. But here's what I think we really need to say more clearly. It's not only about you. It's not even primarily about you. 
Yes, it is about you. You're here. It affects you. You have an opinion. Your feelings are valid. But pause for a moment. Is it really only about you? I think that's a way to retain our dignity, but learn how to think about other people. So when you go up up to a person and say, it's not about you, don't say it with that sort of callous, dismissive attitude. You suck and you don't matter. Stop thinking you're important. Your feelings are valid. Don't say it like that, because that's the way we too often say it. It's not about you. So turn off your heart and stop caring about things. It is about you. But did you pause to realize you're not at the center of the universe? That though it is about you, you'll understand this whole situation better if you understand that something else may be at the center. That you are not alone in this drama. There are others. It is not only about you. It is not even primarily about you. What I think Paul means, and I think many would agree with me on this, is when he says, consider others better than yourselves, he's not saying somehow magically ascribe to others skills or value intrinsically that they don't have. It's not to say, oh, you're, you're nothing, you don't matter, and everyone else is more important than you are. That's not the whole point. It's certainly not, as John Piper, he, he confessed in, in um, one thing he wrote, when I was a kid and I first heard these words, I thought, well, my sister really struggles in algebra, and I get all A's, but I can't rightfully consider her better at algebra than I am. Like, man, this guy's so literal. It's not to say, okay, that person is better at everything than I am. But what it says is, I will consider somebody even before I consider myself. It's an issue of priority, of sequence. And this is still not an easy teaching, but I think it's more realistic than what we first read. Consider others even before you consider yourself. And here's why I think that it's important. Because we don't need to hear from God training us over and over, reinforcing, think about yourself, think about yourself. That's not a problem most of us wrestle with. I don't think God's trying to get our attention to say, hey, you don't think enough about yourself and about your point of view. The corrective here is that's all most of us think about is ourselves and our point of view. And he's saying, before you even jump to that instinctive thing, pause and consider every other person involved. Pause. This matters at work. It matters at school. It matters in your neighborhood, in your families, in your marriage, in your relationship. In every scenario where you relate to others, before you jump to the instinctive analysis from your perspective, pause and regard others before you analyze your own perspective. Just think about it. Why is this person doing what they're doing? We know what they're doing. We know how it makes us feel. But we very rarely dwell on why do I think this person's doing it. And so that's the word of caution to us. Consider others before you consider yourself. That's pretty radical. Let me go back to the story of the young lady in the emergency room struggling with little toddler Matthew. What I heard in that flustered young woman's voice, maybe I read too much into it, but here's what I was hearing. Why are you embarrassing me with this tantrum? And I knew she was embarrassed because she kept looking around. I was just looking over just because I couldn't take my eyes away from this drama. And she kept looking at me like, like I was judging her. She felt bad, you know, like, stop it, be quiet. People are watching. There was this, like, 
Why are you embarrassing me with this tantrum? And there was always also, look, I'm doing you a favor sitting here while your mom's in there. Why aren't you cooperating with me? I'm being nice to you, watching you. Why are you making it so difficult for me? Now, pause for a minute. If you're in her shoes, both of those are very valid emotional experiences, aren't they? I'd be feeling that if I had a toddler going nuts. Shh, people are staring. You little brat, be quiet. How many of you have shushed your kids? Like, and you're like, put the can't breathe. You're like, Shh, people are watching. This makes me look bad. Shh. And there's that other kid and the other parent across the room sitting there thinking about Chopin. And you know, like, why can't you be more like that civilized child? So I know she's feeling that, and it's valid. I also know that when you're doing someone a favor and they're not helping, it's, it, it's irritating. But I just thought, what if, rather than the starting point being herself, what if in that situation she had put herself into this little boy's shoes? It's not every day as a little kid your mom gets hurt badly enough to go to the ER. He looks at his mom, who's usually smiling and looking at little Matthew. Oh, little Matthew. But suddenly mommy's not looking so happy and nice. She looks like she's having a very bad day. And facial expressions really affect small children, especially those in the pre-verbal years. They go to a place that he's never been to before, or at least not that he remembers. He's been in the hospital, but doesn't remember it. And you know the smell of a hospital? It instantly makes everyone nervous, right? If you're a doctor, you'd be nervous every day going to work. That smell just does something. And, and then these strangers take his mom away, and he's trying to, and this, his, this girl, auntie, whoever she is, pulls him away and separates him from his mother. And all he wants is to get behind that double door and be reunited. Now, what if her starting point in this whole drama had been, what's it like to be little Matthew? To be worried and confused and afraid, what would you want in his place? Now, I can't guarantee this would have solved everything and Matthew would have been like, thank you, auntie. I shall be calmer now. You know, but... uh, should we have some tea? You know, I don't think it would have been like that, but I thought, what if, and what, at least it would have changed her approach to things. Rather than expressing irritation, embarrassment, frustration, I think it might have led her to just hold the kid. You can't be with mom right now. She, she needs to see the doctors. Well, we'll see her soon. Let me just hold you. It's okay. She's going to come back very soon. Don't worry, Matthew. Imagine how different that whole situation might have played out if for a moment she took herself out of the center of the situation and stepped into his shoes. Just briefly, I think at the very least, it would have affected how she behaved moving forward. I can offer no guarantees about little Matthew. He did seem like a terror. Okay? But I want you to know that you might be embroiled in something right now and you don't even know it. You might be sitting next to somebody you're married to who has regular fantasies about leaving you. Not serious, not like they're going to do it, but they're just like, imagine if I had somebody who actually listened to me. Imagine if I had somebody who's emotionally available. Like they actually have a feeling and know how to talk about it. Imagine if I could dream with someone, if I could talk about my crazy crackpot dream and she wouldn't laugh at me and be like, yeah, all right. And you might be with somebody right now. 
and not have any idea what it feels like to be in their life with you. And part of the reason you don't know is because you don't care to know, because you don't really spend a lot of time wondering, what is it like to be with me? Was it, and apart from that, what is it like to be you? Who are you? If you're sitting next to somebody who you're married to or you're in a relationship with, you're in family with, I want you to just do something for me. And this is going to feel weird. Deliciously awkward. <laughs> but really just look at each other. And I'm not presuming everyone's in this boat. Some of you are really connected. You're very emotionally available to each other. If that's the case, just make eyes at each other. Give each other a peck. I don't know. But take a good look into each other's eyes. Maybe it's a sibling, a spouse, a significant other. Who is that person, really? Some of you can't even do it right. I'm telling you to do it. You can't. No way. I ain't looking. I married him. It doesn't mean I got to look at him. Come on, really. You think you know that person, but honestly, how much time do you really spend thinking about what their life is like. I know you get involved in the situations when there's an email, a text, you're there, you're available, you get involved, you speak back, you have conversation, but unbidden, on your own, how much real reflection do you engage in about the people around you? The things they can't speak about. The ways in which they might feel invisible. Like nobody sees me and I'm too embarrassed to even let people know I feel like this. There are men I know who hate their jobs, but they can't tell their wives because their wives will feel scared, terrified. What do you mean? How are we going to make a living? What? We're not going to make the mortgage payment. So he hates his job, but he does it because if he looks and it obviously produces security in this woman's heart. The steady paycheck. What he really wants to do is tag boxcars with his friends and become a graffiti artist. What he really wants to do is open a hot dog stand in Cincinnati, Ohio. But he can't tell you that. Is it possible that somebody right in front of you feels totally invisible, unseen? Paul went on to write that Jesus was the ultimate example of putting others above himself. He goes on in the rest of Philippians chapter 2 to tell the story of how in absolute humility he forfeited the glory of eternity in heaven with with the Father's presence and he came down here with us. And his entire life was a mission of dying. His whole mission was to die. And not die because he did something wrong. He died for us. That is the epitome of others-centeredness, isn't it? You can't fully understand this way of thinking and living unless you put your eyes back on what Jesus has done for you. It's at the cross you begin to understand what other-centeredness really means, how profound, how deep this runs. So let me give you, it's only 1130. What's happening to me? I think Pofo might need to go on sabbatical more often. I'm like filling, channeling his spirit here. Um, We've got some time left. I'm going to invite you into some reflection. Okay? 
I don't want you to just wrestle with guilt over this question. I want you to think of it more as a mathematical question. Hey, dude, this thing's going to collapse over here. Okay. Um, all right. I want you to think about this. How self-centered are you? In other words, the best way to examine this is how much do you really dwell on and consider others in your life? Not only when they ask you to look at them, but how often do you actually look at them uninvited, unbidden? Most of us are pretty responsive. When someone says, look at me, we will look at them. But whenever we have our own time, we think mostly about ourselves. So that's the question for you to reflect on. And one way to really get, gauge this is, what do you really understand about the people you say you're close to? Are you sure that you know each other? Remember that game show, The Newlyweds? They would ask a new pair of newlyweds separate questions to the husband and wife, and you have to guess what your spouse would say you answered. And it caused divorces, I'm pretty sure. It's called the newlywed game. It should have been called the pre-divorce game because a lot of people got really mad at each other. I thought you knew me. Why would you say that? How could you even think I would say that? And what I realized is you could hang out a lot with a person and end up actually not knowing them that well. Have you ever looked at your spouse sleeping and you're like, who is this person? I've shared my whole life with... Who are you? Like, what makes you tick? What's going on in there? Are you really as happy as you say you are? What haven't you told me yet? What's going on in there? Maybe I'm the only creep who stares at his sleeping wife and ponders these things. If she ever wakes up, she'll probably punch me in the face. She's like, what are you doing, you creep? But honestly, do you ever really just focus on the other person and ask these deep questions that we so regularly ask about ourselves. So, reflect on that. And I'm going to give you a second reflection. Who do you need to change shoes with? Who in your life is desperately waiting for you to try stepping into their shoes just once? Try to see them, really understand what it feels like to be you. I'll just end with a quick story. Um, I travel a lot by air, not as much as some of you, but I, I've traveled way more than I, I intended to as a pastor. And sometimes when I'm flying out of a speaking engagement, the host pastor chats me up and he doesn't want to let me go, and then we get to the airport a little late. We cut it very close. Well, that happens pretty often, and once I remember getting there way too late, and I was mad at this guy because I'm like, dude, a little consideration. I've got to catch a flight. You're babbling on and I've got to go home. And I see the lines. He's telling me the whole way to the airport, Arch City is a small city, no problem. I get there, and the line of security is like going in circle. It's just crazy. And he goes, sorry. Have a good flight. I'm like, I'm never coming back. You know? <laughs> and so I'm in the back of the line waiting, and I'm very flustered because I don't think I'm going to make this flight. And you know, those, usually there are those airline employees walking around with a clipboard and basically being useless, and they're just looking at you like, it must really stink to be in your... And you ask them questions, they don't answer you. Well, this one lady looked at me, and she could see the distress on my face. That's how bad... Like this. She's like, are you okay? 
I said, no, I'm going to miss my flight. It's going to leave any minute. I got late to there. She goes, just come with me. I know exactly what your situation is. Come with me. And she cut through the whole line, brought me to the front, and said to the TSA guy, this guy needs to get through now. I'm faithfully married, but I looked at this woman with love. (laughs) I mean, real love in my heart. And you know what it was that I was so grateful for? Normally, I expect those people to stare at me like I'm cattle in some line. She saw me. She didn't have to do that. But I felt no longer alone in my plight. I felt like at the very least, somebody, a human being listened to my grief. Felt how frustrating it was to be at the end of that line. And then she not only saw me, she used her power to do something for me. That, that got my flight off to such an amazing start. And I thought, how powerful when you're feeling invisible and frustrated and everyone's just walking by and someone all of a sudden stops and they look at you. I mean, can you imagine if you're a real ghost and you're walking the streets and you're so used to being invisible and all of a sudden someone goes, hey, and you're like, whoa, you see me? You actually see me? Nobody sees me. I'm invisible. Some of the most invisible people in your life are are prominent. They're the pastors at your church, the father of your family, your boss. You think everybody's looking at them. Some of them, nobody even notices. Who do you need to change shoes with? Who do you think you know that you don't really understand and know? And I'm going to give you an assignment. If you're in a serious romantic relationship or if you're married, the first person you've really got to think about is the person next to you. I want to up the ante on what it means to be connected to another person at our church. So I'm going to release you for a few minutes here. Let's just spend five minutes. Can you get some music playing or something, guys? Can we do that? Something not so active. Um, And you know what? Let's just spend a good five minutes or so reflecting. And if prayer comes, let prayer come. If confession comes, let that come. But spend a a few minutes, and let's get that slide popped back up, and let's reflect on these things, and I'll come back up in just about five minutes or so, and I'll rejoin you. Can we do that? Reflection is good. And when we reflect, God often shows us things that are not easy to hear when it's noisy. Um, I know that some of you are intensely bored by things like this. But to ignore it may be costing you far more than you realize. What you're not listening to may be killing you. So as you hear in these quiet times, as you stop ignoring, you start listening, paying attention. God will often show you things. That's why we have a section called Next Steps in our bulletin right under the notes because I think the next way to bring all of these reflections into reality is to commit to do something even a small thing about what you see if God gave you a leading in your heart just as we sing this last song make a commitment in your heart 
follow through and do something about it. Start today. Do something. Grow. Walk with him and towards him. God, help us to do that. Cause your word now deposited to bear fruit in our hearts and flow over into our lives. Raise the definition of relationship in our church so that it will be more than just walking next to people. It will be walking with one another. Let there be no invisible people here or in our orbit. Give us eyes to see and hearts to consider others even before we consider ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.